following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Now let's read chapter 13, verses 1 to 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations." And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, 
For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Jesus, we continue walking through your words here to the disciples, the second long section of teaching that you have given us here in Mark's gospel. And there is so much here that has been confusing to us, not because your word is confusing, but because I think we are confused. Um, We are not careful thinkers. We are not good students. We acknowledge that. We, We are removed from these events and these times and these sayings and that that creates obstacles for us. So I pray, Lord, as we walk through the, the passage that we have this morning, that your spirit will open our eyes and minds to understand. Give us humble hearts to, to accept your truth, to, to not put our beliefs, our assumptions, our presuppositions as somehow being the judge of the text, but rather allow the text to be the judge of our beliefs, assumptions, and presuppositions. And so I pray, Lord, for just me as I speak, uh, my mind and heart feel scattered. I pray that you will bring them together, that you will work through weakness to make your word and your truth clear. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week I made reference uh, and was quite amused actually by the response of the crowd when I said this. I made reference to a children's book character named Amelia Bedelia, okay? I asked you if uh, some of you knew and liked Amelia Bedelia and the exuberance of several of your responses tickled me all week long. Um, As I said to you last Sunday, Amelia Bedelia is a lovable but bumbling maid whose main problem is, is that she cannot interpret normal human communication. And so, for example, one time she is told to make a cheesecake, and so she goes and gets a cheese wheel, and she frosts it and then puts it on the table. It's a cheesecake. She's asked to make jackets for the kids' school books, and so she spends all day knitting jackets for their books. She is told to sow the grass seed. So she sits down outside with a bag of seed and a needle and thread and sews it like popcorn, you know, garlands for Christmas time. Uh, She's told to take the cat to the litter box. So she takes the cat outside into the alley, finds a cardboard box filled with trash and puts the cat in it. She's asked to make a jelly roll. So she puts a blob of jelly on the kitchen floor and tries to make it roll, okay? So this is, this is Amelia Bedelia. You get the idea, right? Obviously, these are funny to us because we understand the real meaning of each of these uh, ideas, but she doesn't understand them. She is unable to interpret them normally. And I want you to note this word normal here, okay? She is unable to interpret those ideas normally according to the cultural and linguistic context in which they are used. Rather, she interprets them hyper-literally, okay? She, she, she tries to literally do what happens or is said in each case, and that's what makes it funny. You know, what do you think she would do if she heard the following expressions? And all of you hopefully will recognize these. Uh, if I say to you, don't worry, I have an ace in the hole. Or if I say, look, I know it's hard, but you've got to bite the bullet on this one. Hey, stop by tonight, and we'll chew the fat. And you think she'd probably be sick by that? Uh, Well, man, don't have a cow. I I know you've got a secret. Spill the beans. See, these these are all common English idioms that we understand instantly, but Amelia Bedelia probably wouldn't. Um... 
However, just for the record, there are a lot of people who wouldn't understand those idioms, those figures of speech. Anyone who is not from our cultural and linguistic context, meaning they're not a native-born American who's grown up understanding our culture and our language, they would struggle with these kinds of statements as well. And it seems to me that without a point of reference in our culture or in our language, they would most likely default back to a hyper-literal interpretation of those things as well. And to prove this to you, I want to turn the tables on you this morning and let you try your hand at understanding and interpreting ideas that do not come from our linguistic and cultural context. So I've got a series of sentences I'm going to put up here on the board, four of them to be specific, and I've tried to arrange them from easiest to hardest. And I'm just going to put them out there and give you a second to read them. And what I want you to do is try to interpret them. Try to, in your mind, envision what is happening with each statement, with each scene. I want you to get a picture in your head. You understand the, the assignment here? Here we go. And I'm going to read them with as little inflection or emphasis as possible so as to not give you a clue to the real meaning. Number one, I was talking to my neighbor in the street last night. I can't smell him. Okay, without saying anything out loud, read it, interpret it. Do you have a picture in your mind of what's going on in this particular scene? You know, maybe this is a neighbor who is well known for having the best cologne on the street, right? And but you were disappointed last night because his cologne wasn't smellable. Or perhaps you have a cold, and so you as the speaker weren't able to smell him. Would it help you if I told you that the meaning of I can't smell him in this particular culture is the same as he gets on my nerves? Is that a quick shift from, you know, where you were and what you were picturing over to the correct understanding? Uh, number two, the girl at the coffee shop was waiting for her date. He gave her a rabbit. Picture it. You know, is this one of those moments that's like uh, where, you know, he's trying to be romantic and you know, most people give puppies and kittens, you know, with a bow around its neck. He brings a cute little white bunny to her to help her know how much he loves her. Is that what you're picturing? Or maybe that she's dating a magician? That's another option. Would it help you if I told you that in this culture, the phrase, he gave her a rabbit, means he stood her up? Is that a major shift from where you were to now where you should be with your thinking? Number three, this one I hope confuses you all. My mom was finally diagnosed by her doctor. She has a cockroach. I'm hoping you have no context for understanding that one whatsoever, that you're just completely lost now. Will it help you if I tell you that she has a cockroach in, in this culture as a way of saying she's depressed? Last one, and I think most difficult of all because of, of how I have worded this. He was drinking at the apple orchard last night, and he fell into the apples. So, so the scene is pretty easy to imagine, right? I mean, here's a guy who's at a party at an apple orchard. I mean, who doesn't go to parties at apple orchards all the time? And he's at a party at an apple orchard, and he's had one too many, and there happened to be a big pile of apples there, and because he's off balance, a little tipsy, he falls into the apples, right? Easy to understand. This is the easiest of them all. Well, not exactly, because I threw you off a little bit by making a double reference to apples here. The phrase, he fell into the apples, simply means he passed out in this particular context. These are all French, by the way, French idioms that I chose for you. 
Um, the fact that he's in an apple orchard had nothing to do with it. There was no connection whatsoever to that phrase. But I wanted to, to confuse you a bit by bringing in another concept or, or context of apples. Now, did you notice how in each example, as soon as I told you what the real meaning of the phrase that, that I had placed in each sentence was, that instantly in your mind, the picture of that scene, your understanding of that scene shifted from this to boom. Now, now you see it. Now you understand. What you were experiencing there was the moment when you moved from literal to normal interpretation. Okay, you went from just having to read it literally because you didn't have a point of reference in, in that culture and context, that language. You went from reading it literally to reading it normally. You see, we often, we often misuse the word literal when we are talking about things, but particularly we misuse it when we talk about interpreting the scriptures. We say that we want to interpret the scriptures literally, but in fact, we don't mean that literally. Because if we interpreted the scriptures literally, like in every moment, we would end up in some pretty weird and funny places. For example, uh, and I saw this years ago and it took me a little bit to find it this week, but if you were to read the scriptures 100% literally, the beautiful woman that, that Solomon describes in Song of Solomon, she wouldn't be quite so beautiful. I mean, she's got a neck like the Tower of David and breasts like gazelles and her teeth are like sheep. I mean, there's a whole bunch of weird features here, right? But of course, he didn't write that to be read literally. He is being poetic in his description of her. And that doesn't throw us off a bit because we understand his words normally. Do you understand the difference between literal and normal and where I'm going with this? Meaning that in normal human communication, we can flow effortlessly between literal, figurative, poetic, and so many other kinds of speech, and it doesn't throw us off a bit. I can in one breath tell you about a restaurant that Jamie and I went to that was so great. All oh, the food was delicious, but when it came to portion size, the, the chef was a real soup Nazi. And none of you instantly started to picture a guy in an SS uniform over the soup, right? Like... Strictly like pouring it out so that we'd only get so much. You, you understand that, or most of you do at least, as being a reference to Seinfeld. And, and so it doesn't throw you, throw you off at all. And it, it's really important for you to get this. It's important for you to understand the difference between literal and normal interpretation, particularly as we step into verses 24 to 31 this morning. Over the past four Sundays, I have been building a case that everything from verse 5 through verse 31 has to do exclusively with the destruction of the temple that occurred in AD 70, and not in any way, shape, or form to the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, etc. And the reasons for that have been well established now, I think, over these past four sermons. And as I said at the beginning, I will not be repeating them today. And up to this point in the text, my assumption is, or my hope at least, is that my explanations to you of what is going on verse by verse as we walk through verses 5 through 23 now, that those explanations have convinced you that it, at the very least, everything in those verses, at least through verse 23, has to do with the destruction of the temple and not the end of the world. I mean, the only thing that I think might have thrown you off a bit as you were looking at those verses would perhaps have been that reference there in verse 14 to the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. If, depending on your background, depending on, on what you have come from, from other churches or other teachers, you may have in the past thought of that comment 
as being a reference to the Antichrist, the figure known as the Antichrist mentioned in the book of Revelation. Well, I hope last week proved to you that that can't possibly be true. Because as you look at what Jesus talks about here, he gives them a series of specific commands and specific thoughts about this specific situation that would make no sense whatsoever in the context of the end of the world. You know, I think that might have only been the point of confusion. I mean, what's the point of fleeing to the mountains if the world is ending? What's the, what does it matter if you're pregnant if the world is ending? None of that stuff matters in that context, but it matters tremendously within the context of the destruction of the temple and the things we talked about last week. I think that might have been the only point of confusion some of you may have had in those verses, but I suspect it wasn't a big point of confusion, and I doubt very many, if any of you were, were hung up by that, you were able to move past it relatively easily. But I am pretty confident that the same cannot be said for verses 24 to 29. Um, These are the hang-up verses, right? The ones that you keep like stumbling over as you're reading through and trying to understand what I've been saying. You're like, I don't understand these. I I know that's what it was for me. It was these verses specifically that caused me to fight so hard, as I've told you, you know, in the last couple weeks, against um, R.T. France's assertion that, that everything from verses 5 to 31 represented an unbroken chain of teaching, reference, logic, argument, etc., that applied to one and only one event. I, I fought against that, and I thought it can't possibly be true, and so I tried to disprove him, but I couldn't. And so whether I liked it or not, I came to a place where I had to just simply admit that he was right and, and, and he was reading the scriptures correctly and I had to agree to him. And it was at that moment that a quote that Jordan sent to me uh, from a guy named Arthur Pink was really, it really hit home. The quote was this. He says, bring your beliefs to the test of scripture. So you come with your beliefs, you bring them to the test of Scripture. In other words, you put them under, under the microscope, microscope of Scripture. Let the Scripture stand as judge over them. And he says that when you do that, when you bring your beliefs to the test of Scripture, you are likely to discover that it is much harder and more painful to unlearn some things than it is to learn new ones. It is much harder and more painful to unlearn some things than it is to learn new ones. And he is right, because it has been very painful for me to try to unlearn some things that I have learned about these seemingly difficult verses, things I've been taught in the past. That, But I was like, you know, I, I have to let my thoughts be subject to God's word and not the other way around. And so, so today, I am going to attempt to walk us through this finally. Some of you have been waiting desperately for this point. Um, Thank you for your patience. Today we're going we're gonna to try to walk through these verses, and all I'm going to ask you to do today is what I've done from the beginning, and that is just to listen, okay? Just for a moment, for the next 30 minutes or so, set aside your presuppositions, set aside whatever belief system you brought into the room on the subject of the end times, just set it aside for a moment, and, and, and try to just hear me out as I attempt to show you from Scripture what I think is the correct way to read these verses. And if in the end you disagree with me, that's fine. No doubt you'll be right and I'll be wrong, but at least hear me out. I want to begin our time in the text this morning by jumping ahead to verses 30 to 31 first 
and then coming back to verses 24 to 29 after we look at this. And I'm doing this for two reasons. One, these verses are very simple, very easy to understand. And number two, they present the interpretive, interpretive bleh, problem to us that is before us here in stark and unavoidable terms. In verse 30, Jesus begins saying, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And I want to quickly point out three things here in these verses. First, notice the reference to all these things. Okay, you see that? It's been repeated multiple times now up to this point. What things, is he is, what things is he referring to? Well, without rehashing my sermon from two weeks ago, I think he is referring to everything that he's been talking about since verse 5. He's talking about uh, the signs or the things that are not signs of the destruction of the temple. He's talking about all the sufferings that would come to those who follow Christ during that in-between in time. Uh, this would include the appearing of the abomination of desolation. This would include the terrible tribulation that accompanied that event. And most importantly, this includes verses 24 to 29. Everything since verse 5, all the way up to this point, is covered by all these things. And there is no way, folks, to get around that grammatically or logically. Second, note the affirmation that this generation will not pass away until all these things have occurred. And this, of course, is the problem, right? This is the part that's hard for us to deal with because I think as we hear that, we, we don't really have an issue up to verse 23. I mean, I can read all the way from verse 5 to verse 23 and be like, okay, I see all that happened in that generation. Great. As soon as I get to verses 24 to 29, though, they don't fit with that statement given the way that we have read them in the past, because we've always assumed they're talking about the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world, which clearly didn't occur within that generation. And that causes a tension in our minds. Now, some people, some people attempt to resolve this tension by redefining the meaning of this generation. They take those words and they try to stretch them out to, to just mean some incredibly long period of time, but but I'm telling you that is not accurate, nor is it fair to the text. The word generation, I grant, it is not an overly specific word. It's not like, you know, sometimes you hear people say, well, generation is 30 years or generation is 40 years. Eh, maybe in our world, I doubt anyone even really thinks about it that way. It's not an overly specific term, but, but generally speaking, you're talking about the lifetime of a given group of people, okay? At, at the bare minimum, it's, it's at least that. And I'll point out the fact that Jesus is being very specific as he says this. It's not just some generation, a generation. He emphasizes this generation. Now, I don't know which generation he had in mind. Is he talking about the generation of the disciples or maybe... <laughs> the generation of the children who were born on the day he was saying it, I, I have no clue. But whatever generation it is, it is a specific one. It is this generation. And what this does is it forces us to wrestle with the fact that, that Jesus is saying that everything from verses 5 through 29, which occurred right before this, right? Everything there is going to happen within the lifetime of some group of people that are alive at the moment he says it. 
And, and, and let me just say to you now that if you do end up walking out of here disagreeing with me, which, you, again, you are free to do. If you walk out of here disagreeing with my interpretation of verses 24 to 29, and you still think they refer to the second coming of Jesus, this is your problem. This is where you're going to wrestle. You're going to struggle with those verses. I'm not, I'm not making fun of you or picking on you. We all have struggles through this, but just so you know, Jesus is being very, very clear here. And on that note, third, notice the certainty that he himself places on the statement, right? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You go, oh, isn't, isn't he predicting the end of the world right there? No, no. He's just making the point that while everything else is temporary, everything else is changeable, the words of God, the prophecies of God, the truths of God, they are eternal and they never change. What God says will happen. It will come to pass. It is certain. And so what Jesus is saying here in verses 30 to 31 is very simple, very easy to understand, and it presents to us the interpretive problem that is before us in stark and unavoidable terms. And so with that in mind, now let's go back and look at verses 24 to 29. Now you may not have noticed this as you were reading through those verses, but there are three unique ideas that are being expressed here in these verses followed by a parable. And I just want to show them to you first so that you can identify each idea on its own, and then we'll go back and look at each of them. In verses 24 to 25, you have what I'm going to call the cosmic shift language, okay? Uh, all of these ideas here are similar to a point. Sun is darkened, moon's not shining, stars are falling, powers are shaken. You see how they're kind of all generally related? This is the cosmic shift language. In verse 26, you have this reference to some group of something, people or else. Some group seeing the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And you can tell this is a new idea, different from the one that came before it because of the words, and then. It's the second idea. In verse 27, you have another and then. Notice, uh, and this time it's regarding sending out the angels to gather the elect. And then finally, in verses 28 and 29, he concludes everything with a parable about a fig tree and how we can know the timing of these things, all right? So you see the flow, three ideas and a parable? All right, good. Let's begin with idea number one, this cosmic shift language. The first thing I would point out is that Jesus is, again here, um, very specific on his timing, Notice that he places this event, verse 24, within those days and after that tribulation. Well, which days is he referring to? Well, it has to be the days of verses 14 to 23, the ones we read about last Sunday, of this situation that is, that is reminiscent of the attack of the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes against uh, Jerusalem back in one, whatever it was, B.C., that he described there in those verses, verses 24 to 27, he says, are, are still a part of that event. And this is made even more clear and more specific by the next reference to it being that tribulation or after that tribulation. And as you read the word tribulation there, I know what you're tempted to do. You are tempted instantly to take your understanding of the book of Revelation and the word tribulation there and bring it back now into Mark. But I would remind you that at the time Jesus is saying this, the book of Revelation hasn't been written. None of these guys know it. None of them are be, will be thinking about something that John's going to see probably 60 years later. So the only tribulation that they would have in mind is this one that Jesus had just described 
in verses 14 to 23. It would be so bad that if he hadn't shortened the days, no human being in Judea would have lived. You have to let their context govern your thoughts and understanding. And notice what happens here in verse 24. As I said, it's directly tied back to the events of 14 to 23. You say, well, well, he does say it's after that tribulation, so maybe there's a really long gap in between uh, those days and that tribulation. Uh, no, no, that doesn't make any sense. First, the Greek word here that's after, it also just means with. It, it's not intending to show you necessarily a big change. It's just it's connecting ideas. It's not separating them, okay? So you could read it as with that tribulation. It would be the same. Second, verses 30 to 31 tell you it all has to occur within that tribulation, so there can't be some really long gap. No, the timing is specific. The events of verses 24 and following occur at the same time as the destruction of the temple that we read about last week. So in regards to idea number one, then, are we saying that some major uh, cosmological, astronomical kind of event occurred somewhere in or around AD 70? Because you would seemingly have to affirm that if you read this literally. But what if we read it normally instead? You see, what you and I miss when we read this language is the way it was used and understood both in the Old Testament and in first century Jewish thought and culture. This kind of language, and I'll show you this here in just a moment, is used to describe regime change. If you take notes, that was an important one, okay? It's used to describe regime change. And I'll give you just two Old Testament examples. There's more than two. I'll give you just two to prove what I'm referring to. The first one is from Ezekiel chapter 32, and I'll put it up here in a moment. This is God's pronouncement of judgment against Pharaoh and against Egypt. He is talking to them or speaking to them about their sins, their wickedness, how he's going to remove them, destroy them. You know, something else is going to come in its place. And in chapter 32, verse 7, Ezekiel writes this. This is God's words. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven uh, will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land. God is bringing judgment on Egypt, judgment on Pharaoh. He's removing them. He's replacing them. Their time is done. And this is the language that's used. Here's a second example. In Isaiah chapter 13, God is doing the same thing, pronouncing the same kind of judgment on Babylon and saying, your time is over. And in, in, in the course of his uh, judgment against them, verse 10, verse 13, you read these words, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. And the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Notice a lot of the similar kind of ideas and language. If you were looking for an English equivalent, we do this when we talk about something being earth-shattering. If I tell you that, hey, I've got earth-shattering news, you're not like holding on to something instantly, like, whoa, you know, we got to the earth is about to shatter, everyone hold on. We recognize just in that language that all we're really trying to say is it's big news, like it's, it's going to change your world. There's a sense in which, in which this is the same, and, and you need to recognize two things in both of these Old Testament examples in order to really have your mind understand them correctly. They, they both have to do with God's judgment. 
God is pronouncing judgment in both cases against these kingdoms. And so judgment is coming. God is done with them. Finished. Boom. They both have to do with judgment. And number two, they both have to do with a regime change. And while I don't have time to take us there and walk us through this this morning, it's interesting to take those concepts and those ideas into Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, after the Spirit of God has fallen on the disciples there in the upper room, they go out into the streets and they all begin preaching. You know this scene, many of you. They all begin preaching in the various languages of the people who are there listening. And, and at one point, the people accuse them of being drunk, and Peter stands up and says, listen, we're not drunk. What you're seeing today is the fulfillment of what Joel the prophet talked about in Joel chapter 2. And he begins to quote about how Joel prophet, or talks about the coming of the day of the Lord, how the Spirit will be poured out on his people, they'll prophesy. And then he also says that the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned to blood. And Peter quotes that as the fulfillment happening on the day of Pentecost. But the sun's not darkened and the moon isn't turned to blood that day. I think Peter understands the usage he sees it as being about regime change. In each of these examples, the cosmic shift that is being described isn't literal. It's figurative. It's referring to the coming of God's judgment and the ensuing regime change that accompanies it. And the language you see here in Mark 13 matches that perfectly. In fact, the only thing that stands out to me here in verses 24 to 25 is the very last comment about the powers in the heavens being shaken. Note that, hold on to it, and let's go on now to idea number two in verse 26. So if we can accept, just for a moment, and you're just hearing me out, if we can accept for a moment that verses 24 and 25 are just Old Testament ways of describing the, the coming judgment of God uh, and the ensuing regime change that was about to take place, then perhaps we can, we can live with that as being a reference to the destruction of the temple. Maybe that makes sense now, but what in the world do you do with verse 26? I mean, here Jesus specifically says that then, at the same time, like then, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So obviously that has to be a reference to the second coming of Christ, right? Um, again, maybe not. In fact, I'd say no because I think we're reading it literally and not normally. You know, it's important to remember that these statements of Jesus are not being made in a vacuum. They're not being made in a contextualist environment. It has a very clear context that has already been established by Jesus and which we would recognize if only we knew our Old Testaments. The fact that you and I don't know the Old Testament well is a constant problem for us as we're reading these words and really all of the New Testament for that matter. Remember how back in verse 14, when Jesus mentions the abomination of desolation, I told you that you know, he's not just making that statement up out of thin air. He's not just trying to come up with something that sounded really cool and would get their attention. That rather, he was, he was making a direct reference to the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 11. And I walked us through that just so you could see where that came from. He's doing the same thing here. This is a second reference to the book of Daniel. This reference to the Son of Man coming in the clouds is taken from Daniel chapter 7. And it's kind of important that you understand that one, because if you don't understand the Daniel 7 reference, then you won't understand this one either. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, 
there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, I need to, to note just two things. One, and you can read this and answer it on your own in your mind, to whom is the Son of Man coming on the clouds in Daniel 7? You see it? He's coming to the Ancient of Days. He's coming to God himself. He's not coming to the earth. He's not coming to the peoples. He is coming to God. And my second question would be, why is he coming? Well, he's, he's coming to receive a kingdom. One that encompasses all the nations of the earth. One that will never pass away. Do you see that? In Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man comes in the clouds, he comes to God himself to receive a kingdom. Now, with that Old Testament context in mind, come back and look a little more carefully at verse 26. You know, he's just used this Old Testament language about God's judgment and the ensuing regime change that comes with that. Well, that's, you know, that's clearly been tied by Jesus to the destruction of the temple, which, of course, he had just pronounced earlier in, in chapter 10, or it's 10 and 11, excuse me, 11 and 12. But, but what about the regime change piece? I mean, if God is doing away with the temple and, and its system, who or what is replacing it? I don't know. Oh, maybe is it possible that Jesus' kingdom is replacing it? Is it possible that, that the kingdom that Jesus has been announcing for the past three years since we got into the book of Mark, repent and have faith, believe the kingdom of God is at hand, is it possible that just maybe, maybe God is, is actually fulfilling those promises? Giving Jesus a kingdom that all people will someday answer to, that he himself will be over and get all the glory for. And as we all well know by now, the kingdom that Jesus came pronouncing was not a earthly kingdom. It wasn't a physical kingdom. It was a spiritual one. Which brings me then to an important question. Notice again that at the beginning of verse 26, he says that some group, they, will see this coming on the clouds and the things that happen with it. Well, who, who exactly is they? Well, I would just point out to you that the closest reference, pronouns are pretty much the same in any language, you know, generally you look for the closest noun to which that pronoun refers. Works that way in Greek too. And the closest reference here is back in verse 25 when he talked about the powers of the heavens being shaken. And I told you to note that comment because it stood out to me. You know, I get sun, moon, stars as being things in the heavens, but what are the powers of the heavens? I don't know what he's referring to there. And it stands out to me because it is a common New Testament way of referring to spiritual powers, spiritual entities that are around us that we can't see. For example, here's a verse many of you will instantly recognize and probably be able to quote with me if you can remember it. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. What do we wrestle against? Rulers, authorities, uh, we wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Does that sound kind of the same? I think what Jesus is saying here is that those powers, those spiritual forces of evil, are seeing him enthroned over his kingdom. 
And he now reigns over all. Idea number three then, this idea of angels gathering the elect. You know, notice this is the outflow of that regime change that with Jesus now reigning over all. And again, if we read this literally, we think of what is commonly known as the rapture, things we would maybe talk about or think about later in the New Testament, where Christ comes and he, he gathers the believers to himself at the end of the age to spend eternity with him. But isn't he supposed to do that himself and not send out others? I mean, here he's sending out the angels, so that's weird. Um, well, let me just point out two words to you that you may not fully understand, and maybe that'll help you. First of all, let's think about the word angel for just a moment. It's a, it's a unique word in Greek. Did, did you know that the word angel, or angelos, excuse me, can be either technical and refer to angels, heavenly beings, you know, you think of, the ones who get their wings when a bell rings, that kind of thing, all right? Not really. Um, it can be technical and refer to angels, or more generally, it just refers to servants, messengers in general. Hold that thought. Next, notice the word gather. They're going out to gather the elect. Hey, isn't the church the assembly of believers? Aren't we the gathered ones? Is it possible that Jesus could simply be describing the formation of the church by means of those who go out on his behalf to proclaim the gospel to the nations? That he's going to send out his messengers to gather his chosen ones, his elect from the four winds? You know, not just from Israel anymore, but from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven? Uh, yes, actually, that fits the context perfectly. You know, folks, what, what I'm explaining, if what I'm explaining to you is correct, and you get to stand as judge of my explanation today, if what I'm saying to you is correct, then, and I believe it is, then we have totally, totally misread these verses in the past. What Jesus is describing here to the disciples is a regime change that occurs when God's judgment falls on the temple as promised. No longer will God work exclusively through the nation of Israel. It's not that he's abandoned them. He's just taking the next step in his plan. He is establishing his son Jesus as the king to whom all peoples now owe their allegiance and to whom all creatures both in heaven and earth will answer. And this king is going to send out his servants to gather his subjects from all the nations of the earth so that one day people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation will gather around his throne and glorify God. I believe that this is a normal interpretation. Taking into account all the cultural and linguistic context of Jesus' day, and I'm telling you, it ties everything together perfectly. And finally, then, he ends with this parable. It says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. And the first part of this is really simple. When you see a tree and the leaves are starting to come out, you know, you know, right? It's not, it's not rocket scientist. You don't have to be a botanist. You don't have to be a scientist. Just if you see the leaves budding, you know, summer's near. It's getting close. Well, in a similar way, when you see these things, a reference to everything he's been talking about here, you know that he is near at the very gates. And, and I don't, I don't often do this because I don't often feel this way, but I'm a little disappointed by the ESV translators in using the word he here. See, Greek's kind of unique. Sometimes you'll have a verb and it doesn't actually have a subject attached to it. That doesn't work in English. But when that happens, you, you have to supply a, a pronoun. 
And, and, and that's the case here. There's no subject given. And so you have to supply a pronoun, and it has to match the verb's number. And I know that may not make sense to all of you, but this is a third-person verb. So that means I have to either apply a he, a she, or an it. I can pick any one I want. It should fit the context, but it's got to be one of these three, third person, he, she, or it. They picked he. And I guess they did this because they're thinking back uh, you know, to Jesus earlier on, but I disagree with them. I think they should have put it. When you see these things happening, you know that it is near. At the very gates. I think he's referring to the situation as a whole, not to the, not to the person. So that's what's near, the coming judgment of God on the temple that began this whole conversation. Folks, all these things he says will come within this generation. And of course, I think they did. I think they happened in AD 70. When the Romans came in and fulfilled everything Jesus describes here, uh, not only did physical things occur in world history that we can go back and look at, but, but spiritual things occurred as well. Things maybe we couldn't see where Jesus is taking his rightful place at the right hand of God's throne to rule and reign over his people. Now, now what does this understanding do for us? Because this probably still raises some questions. Let me just address three things. First, it teaches me that when I come to Scripture asking the wrong questions, I will end up with wrong answers. And this is a large part of our problem, I think, here in in Mark 13, we, we came to it, we have come to it in the past, asking for it to tell us details about the end of the world and the second coming of Christ, when that isn't Jesus' point. He spends very little time talking about that. Verses 32 to 37, what we'll look at in two weeks. we got the picnic next Sunday, so don't show up here. Picnic next week, two weeks we'll come back, and that's where he's going to finally, verse 32, about that day and that hour. No one knows, that's all you learn. No one knows. It's coming. You should stay awake. No one knows. Now I don't have to preach it, because now you know. No one knows. We, we, we spend so little time talking about that, and yet we come to it determined to find answers about our questions you know, related to the end of the world. It would be like, I was thinking about this, it would be like reading or watching Lord of the Rings in order to better understand Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> I'm going to come, I'm going I'm to read or watch Lord of the Rings, so that I can understand what Mr. Darcy is doing. You know, like, I'm not saying you can't find an answer there if you look hard enough or try. I'm just not convinced it's going to be right. It wasn't intended to give you information about that. So why come and ask? Let, let the scriptures tell you what they want to tell you. Take that. Live. You can get your answers about those other questions elsewhere. Later. There, a lot more information is going to be given later. It's just not, it's not here. Secondly, this doesn't necessarily change anything I believe from other parts of Scripture regarding the second coming of Christ. And, and you know, I gave a lot of time to this. You know, saying that, that Mark 13 doesn't teach me much about the end of the world is not the same as saying that it teaches me something different. You, you understand? There's a difference between saying it doesn't teach me much and saying that it teaches me something different than what I currently believe. I, I've given a lot of thought to this over the past two weeks. I've been asking myself, you know, are my beliefs, do my beliefs about, you know, the end of the world and other things, second coming of Christ that I have from other parts of Scripture, do they in any way need to change as a result of this? And I am sitting here saying, I don't think, I don't think so. It doesn't really affect my, my thoughts. In fact, I'll be so bold as to cautiously say that I don't think this understanding of the text helps or hurts anyone's position 
Because there are a lot of positions on the end of the world, second coming of Christ. I've granted that from the very beginning. So if you came in here thinking that you were going to get your position affirmed or everybody else is denied, I don't think that you're going to be very satisfied. I don't think it does either. You know, I, I think that, you know, Chris and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, and he said something to me that was very helpful and has, has really prodded my thinking a lot. You know, if events like this that we read about here in the destruction of the temple were to occur again later on at the end of the world, second coming of Christ, I won't be surprised. You know why? This was Chris's line. Because you find a lot of rhyming in Scripture. There's a lot of rhyming. There's things you see one time, and then you go a little further and you see it again. It's a little different, but it's similar. It reminds you, and you go further and you see it again. You know, you know what I'm talking about, this rhyming idea? It, if that happens, I won't be shocked. So, so wherever you stand on the end time events, you know, whatever, I don't know that I've helped or hurt you here in Mark 13. I think the only thing we've really done is to clear up some misconceptions that we all may have had about this particular text. And then third and finally, it brings me back to Jesus again. You know, if, if verses 24 to 27 are specifically referring to a regime change that, that is occurring here, as I have now argued, then what we see here is the affirmation of the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ over everything. That, that he is truly the king of kings, that he is truly the Lord of lords, that, that God has placed all things under his feet, given him a name that is above every name, that he is the head of all. I mean, just think through all of the New Testament language and references to those ideas about Jesus being king over all. This fits that. And, and if this is true, and Jesus now reigns supreme, guess what you and I have a responsibility to do? <laughs> to live our lives in submission to the king. There's no other allegiance. There's no other place I go. There's no other person who offers me hope. There's no other kingdom I can build or live for, not one that matters, not one that lasts. One king, one kingdom, one name above every name. Jesus is supreme. And so I'm reminded again that this is not here to take our minds or draw our minds and hearts away from Christ. Whereas I feel like, again, in my background, and I'm responding somewhat to my past, I acknowledge that. In my background and my past, when you talked about Jesus' second coming, you talked about these kind of passages, it felt like your mind was always pulled away from Jesus. I'm saying, no, if, if we're doing that, we've missed it. It's supposed to be pushing us back to him. And I think that's what happens here. You know, next time we get together, we will talk about the end of the world. We will talk about the second coming of Jesus. That will be a glorious day as we sung. But for now, we can just sit here and rest, knowing that our God knows all. Everything he predicted and prophesied came true, and Jesus Christ is our king. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, I come and very simply just thank you. Thank you for your word. I feel like I have learned so much just working through this passage. And I thank you and I praise you because you are king over all. You have established your kingdom. You came, you announced it, you call people to faith and repentance, and you do to this day. And we are now subjects of your kingdom, gladly, willingly, under your, under your rule and reign. We submit our lives to you, and yet, we still live in a fallen world with sinful bodies and hearts, and so there's this tension. And that causes us to look forward to that day, to our blessed hope who finally sets us free from this world. 
And that will be a glorious day indeed. And so, Father, help us to long for and look for and watch for that day, knowing that our full and final salvation is still yet to come. Jesus, thank you for all that you are to us, all that you have done. And thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.